Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as Pastor Steve delivers this week's message. Amen. Thank you, Trisha. Give her a hand if you would, please. I, I hope you've felt the same thing I have the last few weeks, seeing our teachers up here. We have, our kids are in good hands downstairs, and I really appreciate uh, those who are teaching them and loving on them, and uh, I know they're anxious to get back to where they can do that in a more personal level. But she asked you all to act like kids, you adults. Maybe you should keep acting like kids, because they listened really well. I like that, and they responded. So maybe that's what we all need to do. But anyway, I appreciate you being here. I do want to say welcome to Calvary Baptist for all of our uh, regular tenders and our members, as well as our guests. It's nice to have you. And I want to specifically identify our uh, live stream audience. It's good to have you with us this morning. And we hope that all of you who have gathered with us today are going to enjoy this time that we spend in God's Word. Here's what we've been doing the last few weeks. We've been talking about this, this subject of the new normal. So today I kind of want to wrap up that, that topic and, and speak uh, maybe for the last time, at least now, and it's not an exhaustive series, but just talking about what that looks like. What, we're, what we know, by definition at least, is new normal, what we mean is what is left when the status quo is changed. Now, we're not talking about pushing some new agenda. or we're, What we're saying is when something changes on the other side of that, there's always a difference. Now, we go through changes pretty much every day, and so... Almost every day, there's some kind of a, a new normal that we, weren't, we didn't experience yesterday. But when we go through some things like we've done recently, I mean, the status quo has changed in huge ways in our lives in the last few weeks. It's, on the other side of that, there's going to be some things that are done differently. Here's what we've been thinking about, though. How do we, and this is our theme for the day, how do we welcome in this new normal? I mean, there's, there's some things that we're, we're not, even the name new normal, some people aren't too fond of. How do we welcome in this in a way that it can really be effective? That's what we've been talking about. Because here's what we've recognized and, been, and tried to say in a very specific way, and that is that God was not surprised by any of this. God was not shocked by anything that's happened in the last few weeks or months. He, God's not up, up in heaven wringing his hands, worried about it. God, God is still in control and always has been. And here's what we know from Scripture and what I think we can, we can take to the bank, and that is that God is working through all of this. That God is still has a plan, and he has a, a, a work that he is doing, in, in, the, in the, even the things that to us are chaotic, even we'd call them abnormal, we, we would think of all those words, God's still working. God's still in control. Here's a verse that we've been using as kind of our launch. Uh, it's from the book of Isaiah, chapter number 43. And I want to go back and read both verses that we started with, this series, uh, where God, speaking through Isaiah, says, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I, that's God speaking, am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Now, of course, this is an, a different time, a different place, a di different circumstance that he's speaking to. But there are some principles that, that begin, you begin to see it throughout the scripture that we pull out even from this verse. One of them is that God is still working in the middle of his people. That God has, has a plan and he is working that plan in the midst of the people and and as he says in this verse, sometimes his people just don't perceive it. They don't recognize it. 
God's working and we're not aware of it. Or, we, or maybe we see it and we don't want it. And so we don't want to embrace it or we don't want to, we try to ignore it or we, try, we, we, we resist it. But God is working and he's, he's got a plan for us in mind. Here's, here's how we describe this, this new thing that God is, as he describes here. What we see in the context is God is doing something that's different. That's one of the ideas of new. It is something you've never experienced before. Uh, he's also doing something that's unique, which means it's not, it, you really, not, no other generation has experienced it the same way we have. A lot of people say, oh, back when, it, nothing's quite the same. Everything is changes, so it's unique. But here's the thing that I want to make sure we remember. This new thing that God is doing is also, we'll call it God-sized. It's bigger than we could imagine so that when it's all said and done, not only can we say, well, God did that, we also can say God deserves the glory. He gets the credit for that. So when God's doing a new thing, which I believe that he is still working in our lives, those are some of the things we can experience. I quoted a pastor early in this series, and I want to I give his quote again because he said, I've been asked over and over through all of this time, pastor, is this the end of the world? And his answer was, I hope so. <laughs> And then he gave this quote. He said, I hope this time ends something in your life so God can replace it with something better. I hope God is doing a new thing in the sense that he'll end something so that something new in our individual lives, even in our church, something even better, which has brought us to this question that we've considered over and over again over the last several weeks. What is it that God needs to end in my life, uh, in our church? What does he need to end so that he can bring something new, so he can start a, a new thing in our lives? Wouldn't it be horrible if we go through all of this that we have and we just not being aware, not being willing that we waste this time, we miss out and we have to go through the training again? In some, wouldn't it be amazing if we learn what God has so that we can actually take the steps that he has in mind for us? Here's what I've learned. In this series, uh, as, as God's kind of walked through this with us, this new normal, it, it's not that a lot of these things are like brand new, you know, uh, just we've never heard of these ideas before. In fact, what I found that this has been more of a core values type series. We're actually being reminded of things that we should be doing all along. This should be what is happening in the church, but sometimes you need a refresher. Uh, sometimes the church will call this a revival. We need a revival of what we know we need to be doing just so we, our minds are, are back on track to what should be happening within our church. And that's what we want to talk about today. So I'm doing something a little bit different today, at least different from my perspective. Um, uh, we're, we're going to actually take some time and review what we've talked about the last few weeks. So if you have your sermon notes on the, on the back of your connection card, uh, there's a few extra fill-ins today because I want to just make sure that over these past few weeks, we, we just kind of one more time reiterate what we feel like God is saying that we, we're going to need to, some things need to stop and so some other things can begin in our lives. So this may be new for you because you've not followed us online, you've not been here, or this, some of this may be review, but let's, let's just remind ourselves what God is saying. Here's the first thing that we talked about. We've got to stop merely gathering and start truly connecting. What we're doing right here, we're gathering in this room, even gathering online, this is so important. In fact, the, the verse on the screen tells us, don't, 
Don't give up doing that. Don't forsake the assembling, the gathering together. It's so important. But we've got to remember that it's more than just putting bodies in a room together or putting bodies uh, and, and people's minds. It's more than that. It's got to, there's a, there has to be a connection. Look at some of the words. We're to be spurring one another on to good works. We're to be encouraging one another. If all we're doing is getting our bodies together and then leaving, we're missing the point of the gathering. The gathering is we connect so that my spiritual walk is better because I've been with you and your spiritual walk is stronger because you've been with me. That we actually come in trying to help and encourage each other. That's, it's not just gathering, it's actually connecting and helping each other grow. Second thing we looked at, we've got to stop as a church being simply present and start being truly essential. Now, that's a big word that we've looked at and, and uh, we've heard often. Here's what we know, fact. Calvary Baptist Church has been in Taylorville, Illinois since 1946. That's a long time, yeah? Um, before me, okay? I'm just, just saying before me. However, this one, we've been in this building that you're sitting in since the year that I was born, 1963. You do the math, okay? I'm not going to help you with that one. But here's the point. It's been here a long time. The community knows that we're here. It's, it's kind of hard to deny. I mean, we're right on the main drag. However, it is interesting. I've had people say, now, where is that church? That's right across from Dairy Queen, because everybody knows where Dairy Queen is, right? Okay? But here, here's the point. We've been here a long time. The question is, right now in the history of our church, are we truly essential to our community? If we weren't here, would they even miss us? Because we're making that kind of a, a difference. Matthew chapter 5 Jesus said that to his disciples, you're salt, you're light, so let your light shine. Jesus said we are essential, regardless of what anyone else would ever identify. We are essential, but the question is, are we living essential? Are we making a salt and light impact in our lives, in our community, in our families? We've got to stop just being here. We've got to be truly essential. Third thought, if we follow along, is with all this in mind, we've got to stop making excuses and take the next step of faith. And that last phrase, when you think about it, it's kind of a, that's a big one. We've got to, taking a step of faith literally requires that it may be something that you, that is brand new and it seems huge and big. You're taking a step that you're not quite sure and that's a scary proposition. Here's what you remember, if this is a God-sized thing that he's asking us to do or he's putting in our lives, it's going to require faith because we can't do it. When God asks us to do something for him, it's going to be something that we don't have the personal capability without his help to do it. We remembered a guy named Moses from the Old Testament who uh, was asked to do a huge task. God was going to deliver his people, and he said to Moses, so now you go, and I'm going to use you as, as the person involved. And boy, that was huge, big thing. What a great privilege. It's an amazing privilege to be called by God, but it's also kind of scary when you think about it that God wants to use me and what that would require. And so Moses did what many of us do, immediately started listing excuses of why this just wasn't the right answer. God, you must be talking about my cousin Moses, right? The guy on my, my mom's maiden side, I don't know, because it, you've got the wrong guy here. Uh, I can't do this. And he's began to list excuses of why this wasn't the right thing. One of the first and the primary things that God said to him, look at this verse. He said, Moses, I will be with you. When, when those people ask who sent you, just tell them the I am that I am sent you. Jehovah has sent you. Here's the thing. When we do what God, when we hear God calling us, 
It's exciting, it's gonna be scary, but here's what we know, is that with God calls, he will, he will be with us. His presence will go with us. He will equip us if he calls us. And so when you hear yourself saying things like, um, what if, or uh, I don't think I can, or this is too big, remember Moses and just simply surrender and say, God, I will. Now you're the I am, you work out the details. We've gotta stop making excuses and start taking that next step of faith. So again, we're talking about what, what we need to end and, and let God begin. Last week, we looked at this verse, John 4, 35, where Jesus told his disciples, um, he said, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. He said, they are ripe for harvest. It, the, the point that we looked at last week is we've got to stop focusing just on the inside and start focusing on the outside. Like we said earlier, this, this gathering is so important. God wants us to gather together here online whenever we come together. But it, it's more than just the bodies getting in the same room. It's actually connecting and encouraging, strengthening. But we also got to remember that the gathering is just our huddle. This isn't the play. The play is outside the building. The play is, the play is what we do in the, in the community, in the world, that we tell others about Jesus and we reach the world. for. That's what God, it's outside here that God has called us. But sometimes we, we focus so much on what's happening here that we miss what we've really been called to do. And we've got to allow God to change that focus, to end the inside focus and change it to outside. So what does God need to end in our lives so that he can start something new? A couple weeks ago, I, I shared a message, but it was exclusively online. It was one of the weeks right before we came live stream. So if you were, weren't back in church yet, you might have seen that. I, I don't know that you went back and watched them again, but we... I shared a message that we went back to the Old Testament again, and it was those people who Moses led out of Egypt, the, the children of Israel, his, his relatives, who had been slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. And when I talk slavery, I mean the, the pictures that we think of. I mean, they were humiliated. They were, they were treated as if they didn't really matter, and they, they, there was death involved and persecution, and just they, they were in slavery, and they cried out to God, and God says, I will deliver them. He sends Moses to lead them out, and so that's what happens. We're talking a million people in that general, with all their stuff, they leave Egypt to go to a place that God had promised. We call it the promised land, going to a, a place that he had designated for them. So they start on this journey, and you can just imagine they're, they're, the way they leave, and they leave with such confidence. And, they're, they're all, and, and God not only got them out of Egypt, but he, he just took care of them. He gave them food every day. He took care of water when they didn't have any. He just, so many things, the Red Sea, all that stuff is happening. And so now we come to about 18 months, 24 months or so after after they left Egypt, this whole group has been traveling, getting close to the promised land. And we come to Numbers chapter 14. The people are literally on the border of this promised land they've been coming for. I mean, they can literally smell it. They're that close, right? They are right there. God, is, God has brought them this far. And so they send in some scouts, 12 of them, to just kind of spy out the land, see what's happening, see what's going on. And they bring back a report and they bring back the report, and the first part is, it is just what God said. It's beautiful. It's a, they, they call it flowing with milk and honey. You know, just, it's just amazing. Ten of them say, but, but there's some enemies there, some people we're going to we're gonna have to deal with, and these enemies are huge. They're gonna, they'll eat us for lunch. They're giants. We're grasshoppers. We can't do this. 
You come to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 2, here's how the people responded. They, comp- they grumbled, first of all. And then they go on to say, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. <laughs> Do you hear what they just said? We would rather go back and be slaves again. In fact, let's go find us somebody who will lead us back into slavery. Doesn't, it makes no sense at all how, until you understand that what they were about to experience, it sounds so good on paper, right? We've got the promised land, all these kind of things. Uh, all this, yes, that's exciting. This new normal may have some great outlooks of God's going to do some things. But then when we see that how, how difficult this work, this is a journey. This is ongoing. There's some things that are going to have to be done. There's some enemies. And suddenly now, wait, I don't know that. I don't understand that. I don't know how to deal with that. I would rather go back to something I'm familiar with. I want to go back to Egypt. Here's what we learned from that. We as a church and as God's people, we've got to stop looking back and start moving forward. We've got to stop relishing on the way it was, and this is why I wanted to go back. We've got to stop looking back and move forward to what God is. It may not be familiar. Maybe it looks difficult, but if God's calling us, we've got to take that step. Here are the few phrases that, I, that we talked about on that Sunday I want to share with you in case you missed them. The first is this, that normal is just what we know. It's not really that. When we think of something being abnormal, it's abnormal to us because we don't understand it. We, weren't, we didn't know it before. There's not like this definition, this is normal, this is abnormal. Normal for us is what we know, what we understand. And so when things change and we say, oh, that's not normal, well, it's, it's not what you know yet, right? Here's the second thing we learned, and that is that often what the world calls normal, God calls broken. Think about for, for a minute, those Israelites said, we're going to go back to Egypt. Take us back into Do you think it, it, everything's just going to be like it was? They just pick up where they left off? Don't forget that all of Pharaoh and his army died. There were plagues. They're not going to go back to any kind of normal. Do you understand that when these things change, you never will able to go completely back to that, what we thought was normal. Because, in essence, what we think is normal often is not normal at all. It's not, what we, it's not what's best for us. It's broken. I mean, we're talking slavery, we're talking humiliation, we're talking pain. I'd rather have that because I know it. And he says, but that's broken. And then what we also know is sometimes out of fear, we'd rather have the familiar than we would have the the freedom of of knowing the truth. Something that's even, though it's destroying us, we'd rather be familiar with it. I don't know how many times in my life that I've, I've hesitated, maybe even wanted to go back to something because at least I knew it. I felt like I could control it. Do you have any friends, relatives, loved ones who you think, why do they keep going back to that? I mean, it's killing them. It's destroying them. And you think, well, it's familiar. It's harder to let go than you think. And sometimes we would rather have the familiar than freedom. We'd rather have the familiar than victory. We'd rather have that, well, let's, let's have the normal. We've got to stop. Looking back and move forward, here, here's the kind of the summary of that, and that's this. God is more interested in our freedom, in our growth, than he is in our normal, our comfortable. Even if God has to shake us up a little bit, allow some things in our life that kind of move us out of our rut, if that will help us to move to maturity, God is more interested in that than us feeling comfortable in our current situation. What does God need 
to end, to bring some things. There's a song, kind of a recent song by King Country with the title, Burn the Ships. I don't know if you've heard of it before. It's actually based off a historical event, but here's one of the lines. Step into a new day. We can rise up from the dust and walk away, so light a match, leave the past, burn the ships, and don't you look back. Stop looking back, and let's start moving forward. So we talk about this idea of what needs to end, what needs to begin. I've given you kind of a review so far. I want to add one other thought to that today as we kind of wrap up this particular series. And to get that, if you have your Bibles, electronic devices, I want to focus for next minute in Philippians in the New Testament, chapter number 2. Philippians chapter 2, it's a phenomenal passage of Scripture. The whole book of Philippians is, is great, but this particular passage, there's so much in here. But I want us to just hone in on one specific verse, and then we're going to kind of look around it as we, we look at this last principle we're going to, we're going to talk about today. Verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul writes these to his friends in Philippi, and he says, Then make me truly happy, by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Now, before we kind of get the context of this, let's just focus on those three directives, those three commands real quick. Agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. You know, we, we're going to kind of understand that in a minute, but that idea of agreeing, uh, your version may say of, be of one mind or be like-minded, Okay, that, that whole concept not only is a challenge, a command he's giving them, but what we'll find is, as you move on in Philippians, there was, a, there was an issue with that in the church of Philippi. Chapter 4 and verse number 2, he actually calls out two women within the church. And in verse 2 he says this, I plead with, and he gives their names, and he says, be of the same mind in the Lord. That same mind, that's the same word we saw in chapter 2, that be like-minded. Look at some other translations. He said, uh, agree in the Lord, or the NLT kind of explains it, settle your disagreement. You see that God was doing some great things in this church, but he's showing that part of the issue of why they're going to find this not moving where it needs to be is there's a lack of agreement. There's some, there's some infighting going on that needs to be settled if they're going to be what God has called them, called them to be. They, they've got to agree with each other. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds difficult, if not impossible. And here's why I say that. You get 10 people in a room, and you're going to have 12 different opinions. Am I correct? <laughs> you look across this room. We're all human. All the people in here, 50 people in this room, we got probably 65 opinions, right? Well, I mean, you, we all see things differently. How in the world can the Bible even suggest that we would agree together. So sometimes we kind of overlook that as it's not possible, but you got to understand the way he writes that is those, these three words are all tied together. That attitude of being of the like mind, of agreeing wholeheartedly, will then allow you to have the action of, look at the next two things, love one another. That's mutual concern for each other and a care to truly love one another. It falls from being able to disagree wholeheartedly and then to work together. To not only have mutual concern, but actual, actual mutual participation. And he goes on with one mind and purpose. There, that's actually one word in the Greek, and it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it literally would be translated to be of one soul, one life. It's the idea of synchronizing your watches or clocks all coming at the same time. 
It's, it's the idea of spiritual soulmates. You understand where we're, our hearts are beating in one to Christ and with one another. What a rich term. That's what the church is meant to be. That's what God's people are meant to be, to be able to work together. Let me show you this other translation in one other word. He says, thinking and feeling alike. With the same love for one another, the same turn of mind, and look at this, and a common care for unity. Unity is a huge term that we hear in our culture, but we've got to understand how powerful it is in the New Testament. In fact, one of the reasons it's so powerful is Jesus was the first one to present this to his people, his church, his disciples. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying a prayer to his father just hours before he goes to the cross. And in this powerful prayer, he speaks specifically about his disciples, but once you notice, he, he speaks of some others too. In John 17, he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me. That would include his disciples then and now. That includes all of us. All of us who are truly followers, we believe in Jesus. I want to speak to all those. Look what he says. Father, I pray that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. Another word for unity scripturally would be a word we'd call oneness. Jesus said, Father, my prayer is that this group of followers of mine will be one. They will speak with one voice. They will have, as we said, one soul. They'll be moving together in what God has called us to do. That, that just gets repeated throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul several times uses words like this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's, that's huge. He says the unity's there. The unity of the body and the Spirit is already there, but you're going to have to work at keeping it. It's going to take every effort you have. It's going to be difficult, but the unity's there. Make every effort you can to keep it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says to them, I appeal to all of you that you, here's our word again, agree with one another in what you say, there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Body of Christ, church, you can do this. It's there, but you're going to have to put an effort to make it happen, which takes us back to Philippians. Before Paul says that in chapter 2 and verse 2, just a few verses before, chapter 1 and verse 27, he gives the reason why this is so important. He says, then I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, look at this, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. He says, we have a work to do. What he's saying in this verse is, there is a bigger picture than just our different opinions and all. There's something bigger. And when we come to, we all are, know Jesus as our Savior, there is a bigger play here. And that play is the gospel. That play is that the world knows Jesus. And we are to be, that is the, the goal. And the striving together, that becomes the method, the path that we do this together so that God's that the world is touched by God's spirit. So when we talk about a new normal, we're talking about having this striving together, which leads us to what will give us our last end and beginning. Church, we've got to stop accepting division and start pursuing unity or oneness. As God's people, we have to, that's part of what we have to do. You've got to understand division Lack of unity is not okay in a church. Now, it may be common within the church. It doesn't make it okay. It may be something that we just kind of 
accept because that's just, we're just that way, but it's not the way it's meant to be. We have to understand God has made us one. We need to act like that. So let me encourage you, take a deep breath in and blow it out because we're about to jump in the deep end here. This is hard. This is difficult because it is so, it seems so odd to see this kind of unity that Jesus describes, but especially when we look at, let's just take a look at the culture and the society around us. If there was a word to use to describe our country, our communities, I think divided would be a pretty good term, don't you think? We, we in so many ways are divided. Here's what I found interesting. I felt, I felt like early in the pandemic, even though we were separated bodily, we seemed to kind of have the same focus. We were all serious and we were trying to, to make the best of a horrible situation. We were trying to work through it and you've sensed this kind of unity. Well, over time, that has become harder and harder to see because we, now we have stories, now we have theories, now we have, it, we have issues, we have opinions, we have all, and so we're, we, we see this and then what happens a couple of weeks ago and then the, the horrible death of Mr. Floyd, right? And now we have racial tensions involved in all of this. And then let's not forget that we have something coming up in November, right? We're all excited about that. Where, what a better word to think about than the word divided? Here, here's what we've got to remember, church, when Paul's talking to these Corinthians, it had nothing to do with politics. This was about the church and how the church is supposed to act. But here's what we learn, that oftentimes what we see in the culture actually influences what happens within the church. And what we, we bring the divisiveness of the culture around us, and we see that being acted out in the church. And do you understand that God's word, God's plan is for the church to do the exact opposite? The unity of a church should be affecting the division of the community. We should be able to, from our unity, make a difference in a divided culture. But we have allowed the division to actually become a part of who we are. That's why he says, Ephesians 4, 3, you've got to make every effort to keep this unity. There's more at stake than just you being friendly. There is a world that's looking for a difference. This is how we do it. There's got to be a, a direction that we have, that we have to be an example of this unity. I take you back to what Jesus said in John 17. Remember he said, all those who believe they should be one. Now look what he says at the end of verse 21. So that, in order that, the world may believe that you have sent me. He said, these disciples can be taking a message that they can believe in Jesus and that, you've been, that I've been sent, and their unity is going to help show that. So if we as a church don't learn how to be in unity and how to, to make it disagree wholeheartedly, if we don't figure that out, then the world is going to miss that aspect that will actually, a, a relevant, practical, genuine way to show them who Jesus is and what he sent us to do. Our unity should stand out in a stark contrast to all the division around us. Now, that's a very difficult proposition. We have differences of opinions. And all, so, so how in the world would God ever expect? What, how can we ever find any traction in this thing? Go back to verse number one with me, Philippians chapter two. Philippians 2.1 Paul's, in my version, it's four ifs statements. You could actually read them as basically rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is? You ask it and everybody already knows the answer. It's rhetorical, right? 
Listen to how this would be written in the rhetorical setting. He says, therefore, if you have any, or here's the rhetorical, is there any encouragement from being united from, with Christ? Is it encouraging that you know Christ? That's the question. Second question, is there any comfort from the love of Christ? Uh, third question, is there any common sharing, fellowship, relationship with God through the Spirit? Fourth question, have you ever experienced any tenderness and compassion? If you're a follower of Christ, what is our answer to all four of those questions? Yes, absolutely. I've been encouraged, comforted. I, his compassion and tenderness is beyond. I, he puts his arms around me in a way that no one else can. Of course we've experienced that. And the world is craving that. That's what unity is based on, are all those kind of principles. And he said, if you're a Christian, you've experienced that. Have you had any of that? Of course I have. Then, verse 2, if you've experienced that, then I appeal to you wholeheartedly, agree with one another, love one another, work together in one mind and purpose. If you've experienced where unity comes from, then you should be able to act in unity together. Let's talk about those words one more time. Agree wholeheartedly. Again, we say that, that sounds impossible. Here's the one thing. It does not mean that we will never disagree. That's just, humanly, that's going to happen. We are going to disagree. But here's what we got to do, Christians. We've got to learn to disagree differently than those who don't know Christ. When he uses that word like-minded, let's just stop, start there. Like-minded means that we, we know that there is one truth that we will agree on, that truth of who Christ is, the truth of the values that God has said, the truth of the mission that God has for us. First Corinthians, he says that we're all speaking the same thing. Philippians, he said that we're striving together. We come and we're willing to say, put all of our opinions aside for a minute and say there is one thing that we know to be true. We're going to hold this Bible together and that we can say, yes, we will agree. We are like-minded completely. That's one thing that we do. Here's another thing that when we, when we do disagree, that we understand that um, we can disagree without being divided. It is possible to agree to disagree and not be enemies. That's possible. It's possible for someone, we're not talking, we're talking non-biblical issue here, non-truth issues. We're going to have a whole bunch of those different opinions. It's a possible that we can hold completely different opinions and still have one mind about what Christ has called us to do. Let me give you the, one of the things that's right off the bat many of you would think about. That's the word politics. Okay, let's just throw that out there. The, the idea of where it's coming and so forth. And, and we're going to, in this room, I guarantee you, we'd have scans, you know, differences of opinion. And we look across the horizon of politics. Truth might be somewhere in the middle there. I don't know if truth's even a part of politics anymore. That's just personal opinion, but it's probably somewhere in there. But you look at whatever side you want to, but here's something someone said this week, and I think it's so powerful. Christians, remember, Jesus is coming again. That's the truth. Jesus is coming. He is going to make all this right, but he will not come on Air Force One. When he rides into Jerusalem, he won't be riding on a donkey or an elephant. He's going to be riding on a white horse, and he's going to set everything in place. And our job as Christians is to get as many people as we can ready before that time happens. Does that make sense? So with that being said, we can disagree on those issues and still come together and be like-minded on what we're called here to do. 
But here's another thing. When we disagree, we can do it with grace. We don't have to be mean and ugly about our disagreements. We can truly, even in the middle of all this, still truly understand what he's trying to say, which then leads us that if we can, if we can be of one mind about what God has called us to do, then we can understand what it means to love one another, to truly have a care for one another. Because it's hard for me to love somebody if I can't even stand to look at them. Doesn't mean I don't have to like what they do, but I still, if I can't even be in the same room with them, it's going to be hard to love them. But if I can agree that we're settled on one thing together, then I can love and I can care and I can be connected and I can be aware of and I can, we can love one another mutually. That's what he calls us to do. And then that would allow us to work together to be able to put our disagreements on the back burner so that we can do what God has called us together to do. Because the church is not just about mutual concern. It's about mutual participation. Church is not to have any spectators. We're all involved in the game. We're all got a job to do. You're on mission as a church. We are mission together. Don't wait to be asked to get involved. You've got a mission. Do what God has called you to do. That's what God has. We're working together. That's unity is love as well as participation. And it's something that God calls us to do. And here's the only way it's going to happen. Look at verse number three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You're not going to find this, this command on any Forbes success list, but if you want to see unity, as God says, here's what we have to do. Don't even mention self-ambition and vain conceit. Here's what we know. Most of our issues before Christ and after Christ boil down to selfishness. It's about what, what it's for me. Selfish ambition, by definition, would be what it's, what's in it for me. Vain conceit is how does it make me look? How good does it make me look? Vain conceit. He said none of that, Christians. If we're going to be unity, you've got to, we've got to humbly. The word humble is literally, translation means lowly. It doesn't mean that you put yourself down. It means that you are, rather than looking down at people, you're looking up at their needs. You're looking up at their, he says, value, esteem them above yourself. Have their interests above their own. It doesn't mean you don't care for your own self, but it means that my opinions, my, my directions, those things, they don't matter as, as much as what's it going to, how's it going to affect you? What's best for somebody else? It's not about selfish ambition of what's best for me. What's best for you? What's best for the others? We get our mind off of us and on to the best of others. And, and the question comes then, well, how far does God expect us to take this? Look at the next verse. Verse 5, you must have the same attitude, the same mind as Christ Jesus. How far do I take this? How far did Jesus take it? How far was Jesus willing to go for the benefit of others? That's how far we as his children are to take it. That means on one hand that I focus on him. It's not just on focusing on being unified and it's focusing on Jesus because if you focus on Jesus and I focus on Jesus and we're focused on the same thing, that will bring us together. So we both focus on Jesus. But now look at the example. And these verses tell us that Jesus in heaven, having all of the privileges, all of the, the glories of heaven, he literally lowered himself. He emptied himself of, of what was, he deserved and came to this earth, became one of us. But not only just became one of us, became one of the poor of us. Became a, he, he became a servant. Look at verse number 8. It says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. How far did Jesus go for the benefit of others? He not only left all the privileges of heaven, and then when he came here, he didn't vaunt it. He didn't say, hey, I deserve this and this. He was born in a manger. He grew up in poverty, and then he died on a cross because of you and because of me. He gave it all up for us. Here's the, here's the, great, the great question. Have you recognized the gift that Jesus gave for you? That you're a sinner. You don't deserve. You, don't, you haven't earned any favors with God. In fact, the only hope you have is if someone dies in your place and Jesus died for your sins because of his love. He humbled himself, he died on the cross, he rose again and gave eternal life and then offers a gift and says all who receive this gift will have life eternal. Have you received that gift? Do you know Christ is your savior? Do you know that the death on the cross was for you and he, and he offers you this opportunity to know him forever? Have you received that gift? If not, you can't. It's, it's an invitation that's open for you. But if you have received that gift... And you ask yourself your question, you know, how far am I supposed to take this loving others and unity? How far did Jesus go for the best interest of you? His privileges, his things he put on the back burner so that he could come to you. And that's how we're to live in relationship with other people. He becomes our example. Remember he said this, you must have the same attitude that Christ had. That word means, this like, it's the same word we saw before. You be like-minded with Jesus in this attitude towards others. You say, I don't, not, not, I don't see how that's possible. Look at verse 13. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. That unity he gave us because we all know, if we know Jesus Christ together, and the power that it's going to take for you to do this as hard as it may be, it's in there. He is working in you to be able to do this. Are we going to, to live in this? It takes us back to our thought. We've got to stop accepting division as okay and start pursuing unity, oneness. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of being at a, a symphony we went to the, to the Fort Worth Symphony one time, beautiful building, and just looking forward. I mean, it's just amazing. These musicians are incredible. But if you ever get there early enough to see what happens before the symphony starts, it's kind of interesting. Because down in the pit where they're all getting ready, or on the stage, they're all getting ready, they're warming up. So you got a honk here, and you got a, a beep here, and you got a blast there, and they're all just warming up their lips, and it's, the noise is kind of atrocious if you think about it. it really, they're just here and here, and just noise, and all, and it's just they're but they're warming up, and it's all that, and it's all these great instruments and all these great musicians, and it sounds horrible until the conductor taps his stand. Everyone comes to attention. And as he raises his arms, suddenly all of those single, all of those individual instruments become this amazing, beautiful symphony of sound. And each individual, they're different, but they all melt together in this one beautiful musical experience. You know, one of the words that Jesus used about us agreeing together that we've talked about is where we get our English word symphony from. So think about this, church. 
you are your instrument and your instrument. We come in and we gather and it's great and we're honking and we're beeping and we're, it's great, you know, but it just doesn't sound too much until the master taps the board and says, now I want to send you out and we're going to do this thing together. And as a church, we move forward in symphony and unity and we make an impact in this community that only God can do. We've got to stop accepting division and start pursuing the symphony that God has made us to be.